Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us this week is Glenn Fitzgerald. Yeah, I am. Also joining us, Jed Brewer. Oh, yeah. We are without regular co-host and denizen of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Lee Younger. He is on special assignment at Young Life's, uh, I almost forgot which one, Carolina Point, as we record. We wish him well and will carry on bravely in his stead. And I think we can uh, carve out a role for him because I'm forced to declare a television opportunity emergency. Oh. oh. Now, it's only a ma- we all know it's only been a matter of time before this podcast takes the airwaves. Uh, following in the footsteps of your comedy bang bang, your Marin, your, I think of the million and one podcasts that have been, those are the only two that have done it. But, you know, two is enough. Sure, absolutely. It's a very smooth transition from DIY podcasting to major television production. Of course, when I say major, I may be (laughs) fudging that a little bit uh, because the news broke this week that uh, longtime host of the 700 Club, Pat Robertson, is planning to step down as as the host of said same show. Oh... So if Um. you don't know what the 700 Club is, then you are to be envied. (laughs) uh, If you've ever uh, like fallen asleep on the cable channel that's like playing the Harry Potter movies and you wake up and they're at 4 a.m. and there's some very, very red faced people in suits talking earnestly. That's the 700 Club. Yeah, it's like a daily kind of Christian Today show. Maybe the best way to describe it kind of meets. Fox News, it's a whole thing. I think this will uh, sum it up best from the NPR article announcing this. As 700 Club host, Robertson sometimes found himself in hot water for his on-air pronouncements. In 2005, he called for the assassination of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez and warned residents of a rural Pennsylvania town not to be surprised if disaster struck them because they voted out school board members who favored teaching intelligent design. Wow. So that's about where you'd expect the 700 Club to land. But with uh, with Robertson stepping down uh, after roughly 60 years on air, not a joke, started in uh, 1961 when they bought a bankrupt UHF television station in Portsmouth, Virginia. And who could have known that the per- if only the person at the time who sold them that station could have known all the horror they would unleash on the world. But maybe Pat Robertson's loss is our gain. And gentlemen, my question to you is what is say that presents the 700 club going to look like? Oh man. Mm. Well, I think there's a lot of possibilities, Matt. I mean, I I think the number one thing just to, to carry on, you know, the August legacy of the 700 club is our ongoing comment on things in the news that we don't understand. Oh, I like, sure. I think to really, do it right though, and to make it, you know, a little bit more, you know, of, of the current age is I think that with the current 700 club, there's a lot of commenting on things they don't understand, but that they think they understand. I think for us, it's going to be about looking for stories where we know we don't understand them and then commenting on them and kind of letting it be like a, a form of information gambling. Cause you never know. We could say something that's actually, Germain by accident and that then you'd really have something okay so almost kind of a jeopardy concept 
Yeah. But for a new show where we just kind of start talking about, you know, some kind of international affairs thing. And then hopefully by the end, the audience can surmise what on earth we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like this. I like this a lot. Just a starting point, just a place to begin. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, one of the things that uh, Pat, bless him, was known for a lot was a lot of uh, bold or prophetic uh, predictions uh, then would not happen, and then that was okay, apparently. And uh, I think we could do that as good as anybody. Glenn, do you have any uh, pseudo-prophetic predictions that you'd like to make just to give the people a taste of what they can expect when, the say, that 700 Club takes the air? Yeah, um, there's going to be a flood. A horrible flood. You know, somewhere. Okay, okay. Because of, because of sin. Sure, sure, a sin flood. I mean, that, that certainly is, is possible. It'd be hard to refute that. Yeah, I mean, that's in there. I think that's a good start. It may lack a little bit of the, the noted Robertson flair, which I think was a little bit more of waiting until something happens and then giving a crazy reason why. Oh, uh, yeah. Like we all may remember, I think he specifically blamed Hurricane Katrina on lesbians. Really? Like, I, as I recall, it wasn't even like a homosexual. It was it was specifically lesbians, which was uh huh. You know the 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 money's in the specificity. So I think sure. The question is, and this is a chance for us to put our own stamp on it because we can mention things we don't like. It doesn't have to be awful homophobia. So you know, when the next natural disaster hits, what are we going to blame? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that have been getting a free pass for quite a little while, you know, so we could just kind of mention them and, uh, just start blaming stuff on their existence, but not like, you know, cause what your mind immediately goes to is like racism or xenophobia, um, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But what if it's like people who get on a plane but don't bring anything to read? Oh, I like that. And then they want to talk, and they want to talk to you. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. It's time to just kind of get on your own personal hobby horse. Yeah, that's uh, and that's um, what you call uh, we got a flood because of that guy. You know, there was a tornado, but it was because of people who, when they're in line at the grocery store, it never occurs to them until the cashier mentions it that they may need their credit card for this transaction. And that's the moment they decide to go start digging to see if they can find that. Yeah. And that's why you got tornadoes. We don't have proof of not that. So it's, it's certainly something to look at. Well, gentlemen, I, as for, as far as entertaining segments, I'm, I'm, I haven't ever watched the 700 club, but I'm thinking your other morning shows, you got stuff like this news of the day, weather, which we've covered, you know, you got, you know, somebody comes on and cook something or this person wrote a book. But as far as recurring segments, I'm, I'm drawn to a, a sentence in this NPR article because you'll be shocked to know, and I want you to brace yourselves, so we're about to encounter nepotism in both the television and megachurch industry. And that's going to throw you both for a loop, I'm sure. But in, it says, in December 20, 2007, Robertson's son, Gordon, succeeded him as chief executive of CBN, which owns and produces the 700 Club. Robertson will will still appear on a monthly interactive episode of the 700 Club and will come on the program, quote, occasionally as news warrants, unquote, the network said. 
And I'm going to pitch a segment where, because we'll have the contract that we have to bring Pat Robertson on as news warrants, but we get to decide what news warrants that. And Pat just has to deal with what we throw him. So I'm thinking, you know, Bitcoin stories, the latest TikTok trends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Big news in European soccer. Sure. These kind of things. Yeah, PSG fails to qualify for the... For the uh, Champions League, despite spending billions on three new forwards. We now go to Pat Robertson. Pat, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I got to be honest. Not just, I mean, obviously I would I would religiously watch the the Say That 700 Club. There's no other way, Jed. Absolutely. <laughs> if If there were punditry shows that were like directly bringing on experts and then asking them things they couldn't possibly know about. I would watch those shows just as a concept. That is fantastic. All right. Let me pitch you this. We have like, you know, they have like shark week or whatever, you know, special kind of promotional days and weeks. You take a a call to week where you take all the ESPN people and all the CNN people and they got to switch shows. Oh, yes. Okay. So now yeah, I got Fried Zakaria's got to come up with, you know, deep, deep uh, takes about the Cardinals' offensive line play. But Stephen A. Smith has to have a answer a question about instability in, uh, you know, the Japanese currency markets and what that means for manufacturing in America. And they've only got the morning to prepare. This is opinion news I would tune in for. I love this. Okay, I'm going to suggest an even more out there idea. And that's kind of uh, conceptual, so you got to wrap your mind around it. But what if you had, like, a pundit show with nobody having any opinions and no predictions? You just say, so, Bob, what do you think? And Bob says, um, I got nothing. Okay, Susie, uh, what are your thoughts? i you know, it, I don't think any of this really matters, and I don't have any idea. And you just go around, and nobody has any th- thoughts, and you say, okay, now let's watch some videos of pets doing adorable things. And you're done. I think I mean, people yeah. would like that. It's like an ASMR, but like uh, for your brain. As opposed to normal ASMR, which is supposed to soothe your kidneys. If it's not, you're watching the wrong <laughs> videos. You're supposed to feel deep. <laughs> Deep release in your lower back. I'd like to go back to trouble in the Pakistani border. We now go to Shannon Sharp. (laughs) And he's just got to figure out the analogy. He'd be like, well, when I played for the Broncos, it was important to be really aggressive when we were blocking because he didn't want to lose the edge. Much like the Indian Army doesn't want to lose the edge on Kashmir. (laughs) Like maybe one of them would be really good at it. (laughs) You know, I was looking up uh, some stuff on brother pat on the on the wikipedia um so uh it, it turns out that in 2006 uh, uh he started uh marketing an age defying energy shake and saying that he was able to press 2000 pounds uh based on you know he could leg press 2,000 pounds. As in, like, British currency? Well, I... Because I, I would find that a dubious claim even then. Well, it, it turns out that a man named Dan Kendra, who uh, s- set the leg press record uh, for Florida State University, was able to 
press based on extensive modifications to equipment, 1,300 pounds. So 2,000 for Brother Pat seems like maybe uh, not quite that. But I'm just saying... Sounds like that drink's pretty good to me. I'm just asking. <laughs> I'm just saying, how much can you guys leg press? Because that's that's bound to come up. Well, it depends, Glenn. Have I had an age-defying energy shake first? Well, I I don't know why you would do any leg presses without buying that snake oil from that dude. I mean, come on. Well, I think this gives us another great segment for our sports meets uh, news crossover show. You know, we go to ex-NFL great so-and-so to give us the latest on the new cryptocurrency. And now here's Don Lemon with a snatch and jerk going for the Florida state record. Mm. (laughs) We didn't tell him that's what he was doing this morning, but he wants to keep this job. We, uh, well, you, I think you're on top of it. So it's like, what if it was like a news punditry, but you had to, you had to press a certain amount of weight before you could give your opinions. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, this also leads into the fact as we've discussed a show on the, on this program before. Uh, I think this is a Jed lathe of heaven to this into being because they have announced that they're relaunching American gladiators. Hmm. And I now am pitching the, because they do like celebrity American gladiators and it'd be like, you know, this guy played half a season for the Jaguars where he got hurt. And I was going, that's, you know, celebrity, celebrity American gladiators, but with like former secretaries of the former press secretaries and like people of that ilk, like former, uh, this is a former senatorial aide who's on, uh, on, who's on cable news panels, but now he's got to face the gauntlet. (laughs) he'll be going up against nitro and yeah if they win they get five minutes to tell you about tort reform or whatever (laughs) yeah did we just pitch a new debate for a new format for political debates yeah i mean if if that's what uh meet the press was man i I would tune in every sunday yeah emphasis on meat yeah Well, like, you know, you know, like these uh, pundit shows, you usually got like four of them and then you got, you know, like four different panelists or something like that. And what you do is like, you got all the different networks. So you make them run a relay race and they got to, they got to pass a baton and whatever. And whoever wins the relay race, they get to give their opinion. See, we're, we're, I think we're now just repitching Gabe Kaplan's battle of the network stars. And I'm fine <laughs> yeah, with it. <laughs> I do that. Yeah, I think, you know, the 700 Club people versus the Jesse Duplantis people versus the, uh, you know, your uh, Bill Winstons and whatnot, all the Christian television network people, but forced to compete in physical challenges. Yeah, I mean, uh, my question is, are they holding auditions for the new Pat? I mean, what's the story? I assume so. Or maybe we just like sit in a tape. Yeah. Like kind of real Just world style thing. or yeah, a yeah, show yeah. from the last 20 years, whichever way you want to go. Yeah. 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 We, and we could do like some of our own homemade stunts and put that in there and, you know, cause I, I can put on a two piece suit and, and talk nonsense. Sure. I think, I think homemade stunts are the way to go. And that brings me to maybe the best idea we've had yet. And we'll leave on this. Uh, 
Uh, Johnny Knoxville taking over for Pat Robertson. Who says no? Yes. Uh, Let's just get right in I would watch that. They're putting out the last Jackass movie. Let's go ahead and, and meld those properties. And on that note, we will declare emergency off. But delightful morning television, very possibly on. <laughs> but for now, we will continue to pour most of our creative efforts into things like Bridgebox and the Bridgecast. You can catch those. You can catch the Bridgecast every Sunday at 7 p.m. or whenever you want to over on the, over on the Facebook machine, facebook.com slash Bridgecago. You can check out Bridgebox at missionusa.com slash Bridgebox. Both great ways to support us and get a little extra of Mission USA stuff in your life. Check those out. All right, we're going to jump to our first question here. If you handle this all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can get in touch with this, or you can scroll down into your episode description and click the links at the bottom. Our first question this week comes in and says, I'm afraid of failing again. Every time I do, my life falls apart and I have to start over. I've lost so much, I'm afraid of it happening again. What do I do about that? And uh, Glenn, a great question, obviously a a very big question as far as big emotions and big thoughts and a lot going on here. So where would we start off? Yeah, you know, in our day job, we're used to dealing with people who who are in this position that have failed on on really epic scales and and have done so in sort of a, a, a cyclical sort of pattern. And when when we're talking about failure for them, that's being homeless in Chicago for a while. That kind of, you know, really everything breaking down kind of failure. Uh, but the, I think the, the way I want to start in on this is to ask, how good are you? How good are most of us at learning from failure? Uh, I think there's a. There's a tendency, of course, to not want to look at failure. You know, we've talked before about that idea of just it's it's so it's so painful to think about failure. We just avoid the thought. If you do that often enough, you're not going to learn from that, and then you're going to end up repeating those mistakes. So, I think a big part of of dealing with failure is really that post mortem and and really looking at how did I get to where I'm at? How did this take place. And I think from there, I think it's really important to apply those lessons. And it's sometimes really surprising how, how poorly we do when we know what the right thing is, and we still struggle to actually execute that and actually make that happen. I, I think so much of our life is unexamined and so much of our, you know, just the way we go about everyday existence tends to be Un, uh, unconsidered. It's unplanned. It just unfolds in front of us. So really, I think letting the Lord give us some wisdom on that and getting some peace about it and learning from it and then making that lifestyle change, that's the order of operation there. I think a big part of that then is majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. Uh, if you're trying to come back from a failure there's a whole lot that you're not going to have time for. Simple as that. Uh, you just you don't have time to go to every little dysfunctional family event. Maybe you pick one or two, and maybe you stay for about 15 minutes, and that's it. And you know you want them to think well of you, and they're saying, "Oh, I guess you're just too important to hang out at the dysfunctional family event." 
And you, you got a couple of options. One is to say, you guys are all kind of schmucks, so you're better in small doses. You could say, hey, you guys have a good time. You know, I, I need to get on with my life and do some other things. Uh, but what you don't need to be getting in the habit of there in, in a pattern of is trying to make everyone else happy. That's just not going to work. And that's a big part of failure is you feel like I've let everybody down. So now I need to go back around and just make everybody happy. That's not actually how recovering from failure works or how it should work. What it should do is to trigger an understanding within yourself that I have been majoring on the minors far too much. I've been trying to keep other people happy. I've, you know, I shred the last of my sanity doing some favor that somebody's barely going to notice because I'm trying to get them to think well of me. That's not the life that God wants for you. And God, first of all, wants you to be focused on uh, making him happy because he has your best interests at heart. Uh, He has things that need to be in major focus, and he has a lot of things in your life that he wants to be very minor you know, the kind of stuff of if we have some time left over, we could do these kind of things. But I think it starts with going to the Lord and making sure you know what those things are. Because I think some of our examined, our assumptions, again, are un, unexamined on all of that. And that's what keeps these patterns repeating themselves. I think that's a really, really strong place to start off. A lot of excellent stuff going on there. And Jed, where would we pick up this idea that I think one gave us, which is very important, of evaluating types of failure, how failures are yeah. different? I think that's an odd thought to a lot of us. Just, you know, you, you get an A or you get an F and, you know, if you get an F, you, you failed and that's the end of that. But as he's pointing out, all failure isn't different and there's, isn't the same and there's lessons to be learned from them differently, right? That's exactly right. I think the first thing that we need to begin with is in life, everybody fails. There's no such thing as you living a life that has 0% failure in it. That, that's actually not an option. We're going to look at this Bible verse in, in um, our next episode, but it's actually really applicable here as well. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. It says, the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. And one of the takeaways on that is, especially in America, we have this idea of, if I'm just awesome enough, I'll never fail at anything. And this is not true. Everybody experiences failure, absolutely everybody. But the thing that we need to begin to make peace with is the idea that Not all failure is the same. There are ways in which we can fail where it's pretty easy to get back up and try again. And there are ways in which we can fail uh, that are more on the catastrophic side of things. You know, so I'll give you like a real example. My wife is a a martial artist. and, And one of the things that she's explained to me that's a big part of that world is literally learning to fall without hurting yourself. If you wanted to think about it, you're falling because something's gone wrong. Somebody tripped you or they shoved you or something happened. So in a sense, you're, you're kind of failing, but you can fail in a way where you don't super duper hurt yourself. If you fall badly, you could, you could break your wrist. You could strain something and things could go really long. You can learn 
how to experience a form of failure without it causing you a huge problem. For example, learning to fall without hurting yourself. And so my question for you is, do you know how to fail in a graceful way? Given that you're going to experience failure in your life, again, that's that's just not uh, an optional thing. That, that A certain amount of that is going to happen to you and to me and to all of us. Do you know how to do that gracefully? Do you know how to do that in a way that lowers the consequences, that lowers the um, recovery time? And I think it's important to, to look at this for a few reasons. One is Americans and Christians and especially American Christians – I think are sufficiently afraid of failing, even though they're definitely going to, that they feel like, well, if I lowered the consequences, it's like that would tempt me to fail more. And that is, that's not true. Uh, that <laughs> That's just hurting yourself for no reason. But I'll, I'll give you a, another example. Um, suppose that you've had, you know, a, a bad week or a bad breakup or something's gone wrong and you're like, I, I just I need to comfort myself and I'm just going to go out and I'm going to get totally hammered. I mean, just I'm doing I'm doing all the booze. That's that's not a super healthy uh, coping mechanism. But here's the thing. If you do that and you go out with good friends who are looking out for you and keeping you out of trouble we're doing something that's not a great idea, but we're doing it in a way where the consequences are much less. If you drive yourself to the bar and do that and then drive yourself home, we are now doing this in a way where the consequences are going to be much, much, much higher. So, yes, there's failure, but there's also modes of failure. There's types of failure. There are forms of failure that are relatively soft and relatively easy to recover from, and there are kinds of failure that are almost impossible to recover from. We really want to encourage you to let go of the shame about failing because absolutely everybody fails, and, and literally the, the Bible tells you as much, but to embrace the idea that we can learn to fail in a graceful way. We can learn to fall without hurting ourselves, and the quicker we're able to get back up, then we can get that learning from failure element that Glenn is telling us about. I think that's all uh, such great stuff from these guys and really hubs to me around that point of failure as something to be frightened of, to be defined by, to uh, spend a life and energy and effort just trying to avoid. And as both these guys are pointing out, that's not going to happen. There's no such thing as a life where you just don't fail, or as Des pointed to there, if you consider something important enough or uh, critical enough, you will just muster up the ability to not fail at it. Uh, failure happens. Failure happens to all of us. It happens in all sorts of scenarios. We can't always see it coming. If we could, we would do uh, things differently to avoid it. But as these guys are pointing out, it's kind of like, to use another um uh, violent analogy, another martial arts analogy, the idea that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. It's great to have a plan going in. It's much better to have a plan when things go wrong, to have a plan coming out the other side. And that's the kind of thing you can really come up with a good plan for. You can really apply that wisdom, apply those things you've learned, if you're willing and able to have the courage to face the idea of failure down, your past failures, what future failure might mean. All those things. If you can look that down, you can really learn a lot. And you can do that because you don't have to be afraid about failure defining you or limiting your life in any way because we know that God has big things for you. Move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, my counselor told me I need to have more confidence. 
I'm sure they're right, but how does one actually get more confidence? And I think this is another great question. Um, we looked at something kind of recently as a bridge topic, and I, I mentioned that um, I've been told a lot in life, especially through my youth, well, you just got to have confidence. And that was the end of the sentence. No one ever mentioned what that was or where to look for it or what it would feel like to have it. And that's that doesn't fly anywhere else. You don't get to someone say, well, I'm a little short for rent this month. You say, I'm going to let you know a little secret, son. What you need is money. And then just turn around and walk off. That's not advice. <laughs> but confidence is a thing. It is a in some ways a skill and something you can get more of. So, Glenn, how do we go about actually doing that? Well, I th- I think it's really great the way that you're bringing that out because I I think it it is kind of an oddly abstract idea when you're trying to obviously apply it in a concrete world and and make that happen. Uh, so l- let's start here. I think if, if you want to have what people I guess think of as confidence, I think that's about reps. I, I think it just keep trying. Uh, I think when you look at someone and say they seem really confident, what you're really looking at is someone who j- has no concern about their ego in in terms of failing at something that they're trying to do. So they just keep trying because, you know, they're, they're not going to become depressed about themselves if they meet with some failure. Uh, to me, that's the... I think that's the essence of what people think confidence is and the the way that they they describe it, the way they view it in other people. Uh but I I think that's a, that's the the problem is we connect this idea with success and my identity and my sense of self. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. Uh I think you're much much better off thinking in terms of my self-image needs to be tied to the fact that I keep trying, that I keep learning, as we talked about in the last question, that I uh, am willing to be brave and and keep on hanging in there. And because I'm trying and because I'm learning, I'm getting closer with every attempt, even if it's what someone else would call failure. I'm, I'm not failing to learn. I'm not failing to grow as a person. So therefore, I consider it a success. Uh, you know, my father was an engineer and, uh, you know, I, I remember, uh, going to, you know, my first high school dance and I told him, you know, I don't feel very confident about, you know, asking girls to dance. Cause you know, I, I, you know, I, I know I know how to dance, but it's, I don't, I, it seems very odd that a girl would want to have anything to do with me. I've seen myself and I'm not, I'm not sure what the appeal is. And he said, well, you know, here's the thing. What if I told you, and again, this sort of an engineer's way of thinking, but what if I told you that one in five girls would want to dance with you? Would that be about what you're thinking? I said, yeah, maybe, yeah, somewhere around there. And he said, well, okay, that just means you have to ask five girls if you want to dance. That's just the way that goes. You you can decide to have a lot of feelings about that, but you're not going to end up dancing. And so, if you want to get to where you're going, you you have to go through four no's to get to that one yes. And you know, so I go to the high school dance, and I you know, <laughs> me being me, I I go up to the prettiest girl there and say, "Hey, would you like to dance?" 
And she said, no. And she's there with her little friend. So I just asked the girl next to her, how about you? Would you like to dance? And she said, no. And the, you know, I kept going down the line. Now there was a gal on the end that's about foot, a foot taller than me. And I said, would you like to dance? And she, you know, she about jerked my arm out of the socket, uh, taking me out to the dance floor. And we had a great night. You know, we got to know each other and, uh, you know, danced and it was great. So, you know, to my friends, they would look at that and say, he's so confident. He's so bold. He doesn't, whatever. But I don't know if internally it felt like that. It just felt like this is how you get to a place of success is is through repeated attempts that, that you don't let your ego, uh, you know, hold you back on. So I think the question for you is, can God call you into a situation where you feel likely to fail? Where it's a sort of a failure, a, a high high chance that you sort of fail a bit before you figured it out. Because I've seen a lot of people avoid anything where it might look like they're failing. And I think that goes double for people who are successful. The more successful people are, the more they covet their own success. And they don't want to end up getting into a lot of failure because they, they're on a hot streak of success and what have you. Uh, but I think that's the question is, can God call you into a situation where failure would be a likely possibility? Uh, and, you know, so I think ego is playing a larger part really than the, the confidence thing itself. That's excellent. Excellent place to start off. I really love that distinction and the, uh, the freedom that it gives us when we can draw those kind of distinctions. And Jed, where do we take it from there? Well, let, I, let's kind of look at some vocab for a second because English is an imprecise language, and we often use the word confidence to mean several different things that don't really have anything to do with each other. And we can kind of interchangeably jump from one meaning to another without being clear. So when people talk about, you know, I need to have confidence, uh, I think that there are many things they can be, but, but three in particular that jump out. So let's look at them together. The first is, I believe that I can do this thing because I'm amazing. I am the most amazing person in the world, and I can do anything, therefore I can do this. Um, that is a pretty dangerous concept. Like, I think most of us could maybe use like .0001% of it once in a while as a way to get motivated, but the the belief that, you know, I am, there's nothing I can't do because I'm just inherently that amazing that's perhaps not the best way to go through life, but that's often what we are talking about when we talk about confidence is, is someone with just kind of an, an insistence, there are no limits for me. But I don't think that's what your counselor is talking about for you. The next kind of version of confidence that, that we have is I believe that I can because other people can. If they can do it, I bet I can do it too. Now, sometimes that actually is totally accurate. Like if you say, I've never navigated the subway before, but millions of people do it every day. If they can all do it, surely I can figure it out. That's that's good. That's true. That's that's a useful way to look at things. Sometimes, though, this idea of other people can do it, so can I, sometimes that's not accurate. You know, if you say, well, you know, other people get to be in the NBA, I, I could probably just do that too. That's, that's not really how that works. Uh, then the last version of confidence and, and the one that I think actually is going to really apply to your situation is I believe that I can do this because essentially I've done this before. I've, I've either done this thing or I've done something similar to it. I, 
it's not really a stretch. I, I know that I am able to do this, right? So if you, if you worked in janitorial services and you, you know, uh, were used to mopping one office building and then you got an offer to mop a different office building, you can't 100% with certainty say that I will encounter no problems mopping the new office building, but you have every reason to be confident that you could go do this because you've done it before. You've, you've essentially done this thing. And I really want us to look at that because I think in many ways that's the kind of confidence that your counselor is pointing to because this is a form of self-trust is in many ways what we're describing here. We're saying that I have learned that at least in certain regards, in certain scenarios, certain things, I can trust myself. And like all trust, this trust has been earned. I have provided successfully janitorial services at Office Building A. It is reasonable for me to trust myself that I could also provide these same services at Office Building B. You have earned that level of trust in yourself, and it makes sense to give yourself that trust that you have earned. If we want to become more confident, then I think one of the practical ways to do that is to say, what are areas where I can give myself the ability to earn some self-trust? Whether that's relationships, whether that's um, seeking new adventures and new opportunities, how can I create kind of some baby steps for myself where I can try something that's a little bit risky and discover that I, you know, pulled it off, I I got through it, or if I totally failed at it, I, I learned something so that I was able to try again so that I can learn to trust myself in this new arena. Because again, confidence and trust, particularly healthy confidence, they go hand in hand. And I think that's the thing that we want for you. In any arena of life, you can find a good and appropriate way to earn some trust in yourself bit by bit. And that's really the thing that we want for you. As you do that, I think you're not only going to become more confident in that area, but you're going to get more used to the idea of intentionally developing confidence in new areas of your life. And as you do that in the future, it's going to feel more natural and probably go a bit faster. I think these are both great points. I want to, I want to close with a cliche as, as is often uh, done, but this is a really good one and it really applies in this situation. And that is one you've probably heard uh, called fake it till you make it. Uh, we hear that a lot in people who are working their, their addiction recovery and some other things. And the idea of course, is if to take a uh, Jed's job example, let's say you've been the janitor at a company and there's a security guard role that opens up. You consider that a move up. Maybe it's better pay. Maybe it's better hours, but you don't know if you can do that job. Uh, you show up the first day and you just com- continue to tell yourself, I can do this job. I belong in this job. They hired me for this job. I, I can do this job just to do it. It's not that different. Like I know, I already know the layout of the building. I'm the best guy to do this job. Um, even if you don't feel that, you just say that to yourself and you think about, am I projecting this outward into the world? And eventually, if you kind of go along and things pick up and you make the changes and you make decisions, you will grow into, you will just have done that job for a month. And now you have a host of experience where you can have real confidence. You just look back and say, well, I did the job for a month. No one fired me. And I, yep, yep. you know, they, they seem to like me. So now I can move that up. I think kind of exactly where Glenn started us. So much of the confidence conundrum comes from going, getting from zero to any kind of momentum. And that really is kind of the time to, to kind of beg, borrow and steal 
wherever you can convince yourself that you should be be confident if that's you know you wear your your nice new shoes because it makes you feel great about yourself and that means you can ask that person out or you know you have your you know movie soundtrack playlist that you listen to in the car on the way to the job interview to get you hyped up but there's there's nothing too wacky or crazy or stupid to get yourself from a point of i don't know if i can do this to maybe i can do this like that doesn't feel like a huge jump but it's a huge jump and it's the biggest jump you'll have to make and once you have a little momentum going on that then things are really really gonna you put yourself in a position where things can pick up and as these guys point out it's a really great place to get god involved in that as early as possible when you need that big jolt when you need that big step that is a great time to really double triple down on seeking that directly from the lord and looking for those dividends to pay off we're going to move to our final question here it comes in and says how do you regulate stress i feel like i let dreading something in the future tie me all in knots but i don't want to just deny that a problem might happen that doesn't feel right either and another another very cool question, another very practical question, which we appreciate on the show. And Glenn, where do we kick off with this? Well, you're right. It it is a practical question, and and I think the problem is when you ask Christians about that, they would say, "Well, you know, what you need is peace." That's you know the the opposite of the kind of stressful situation that you're dealing with is is getting a sense of peace. But now we're back to abstract concepts that you know, how do I do that? What is that all about? And how does that work? And uh, there isn't as much unpacking of that as there should be. So, uh, so let's unpack that. Uh, let's, let's start with this. If you want to have more peace in your life, let's start by recognizing that peace is downstream from wisdom. Uh, so we need to have a sense of what is going on from God's perspective. How does he describe these situations to you? How does he characterize the nature of what's going on in your situation? Uh, if God is, is if you're praying and the Lord is giving you a real peace about how things are going, uh, if he's if He's saying this is not a crisis, you, you're worried about it like it might be a crisis, but it's not going to be a crisis, then getting a hold of some peace is pretty easy. You have you have a sense of, uh, well, okay, if, if I don't need to worry about it, I'm not worried, and you know, I have a, a piece that God's going to look out for the situation, and I don't need to be worried about it. So I think a part of this is recognizing the idea of just starting with peace without getting that wisdom doesn't work nearly as well, or, or really hardly at all. I need to, to not uh, get in a, a, a denial of this. And I think that's really where we get in trouble, is to say, okay, Option A is be stressed and worry about things all the time. Option B is denial, really. Uh, but the problem with uh, Christians is that we can get into sort of a self-righteous denial with that. Now, this is an idea I really have to credit a guy by the name of Robert, who was in our uh, prison uh, Bible study today, one of the inmates. And we were talking about this, you know, when we're dealing with trying to rely on God and we're trying to get out of sort of this stressful life that we're living, how do we do that? What does that look like? And we talked about that denial piece and the sort of uh, saying, oh, I've got this, you know, what have you. But he said what happens 
a lot of times we get self-righteous within that. We say, oh, you know, I'm just being faithful. I'm just praying. and I'm just leaving it up to God. Well, are you or are you just ignoring it? You know, are you just in denial about it? You're just you're just putting God on it, and you're sort of congratulating yourself and saying, "Hey, you know, I'm being pretty Christian about it because I've just decided I'm giving it up to God." But that's not the same thing as what we were talking about earlier about really wrestling with it and really going to God and saying, "What is going on here, and what should I think about it?" And you've wrestled with that. You've you've broken that down in certain ways. But I think part of this as well is we have to, before we can get to all the stuff I'm talking about here, we have to really embrace why we're worrying in the first place. Because on one hand, you say, well, you know, if circumstances are a certain sort of way, a certain amount of worry would be justified. You know, this is, looks like a dicey situation, looks like disaster could be imminent, makes sense to worry. But in, in that, uh, I'm sure on an emotional level, that's absolutely true, that, that it's, it's a reasonable thing. But I, that's not the same as why can't I get out from underneath worry? Why can't I change the channel off of worry? I think when we're in that sort of position, we're looking at a subconscious process where we're saying, I think if I am not worrying about this, maybe that means I'm not focused on it. I'm not concerned about it. It means I don't care. And if you care and you're focused and it's important, what you do is you worry about it because the worrying is means you're engaged. And if you're engaged and focused and you care, that's bound to be making a difference. And of course, that's not in any way true. When you do stuff, it makes a difference. When you listen to God, it makes a difference. Uh, when when you handle situations and understand the nature of what's going on, that makes a difference. But I think we have an almost superstitious sense that uh, worrying can affect that outcome. That's another fantastic place to start this off. And absolutely thinking about outcomes counterintuitively is a great place to start with this. I think sometimes we think of thinking down the line, thinking outcomes as a way to to add to that stress. But Jed, I think a lot of this is going to be looking at some probabilities and some realistic ideas, right? That's absolutely right. So I want to read uh, the second part of your question again. I feel like I let dreading something in the future tie me all knots, but I don't want to just deny that a problem might happen. And I think that actually you're, you're uh, most of the way really to answering your own question, just with the idea that a problem might happen because man, life is full of problems that might happen. Um, there, there's basically an infinite number of them. Uh, you know, uh, dinosaurs were basically all killed by a, a huge asteroid and there's nothing to stop that from happening again tomorrow. Like, you know, NASA does scan for that, but they could have missed one. Um, so it's, it's possible that a life ending asteroid will hit the earth tomorrow, but it's not super likely. And that's actually people that do professional risk assessment. That's really in many ways, the first thing that they look at is what is the likelihood of this bad outcome? There, there's a bad thing that no one wants to see happen, but how likely is that thing to happen? Because if the odds of it occurring are, you know, one in 100 trillion, we, we may not need to worry all that much about it. 
if the odds of it happening are 50-50, then we need to come up with a plan. But I guess kind of the first thing that we need to acknowledge is all potential problems are not the same because they don't all have the same likelihood. You know, the, the, the odds of you getting a speeding ticket on your way to work tomorrow are almost infinitely higher than the odds of uh, an asteroid hitting the Earth. And so one of these we need to have a good plan for, the other we may not need to worry too much about. So once we've begun to look at the likelihood, based on that likelihood, the, the next question really, and again, this is what people whose, whose job is kind of anticipating and solving problems do, is to ask, what are the reasonable steps that we can take to mitigate the consequences of this bad thing happening. If there's a certain you know, percent chance that it may happen, what can we do? What can we have in place um, so that it's less of a problem when it happens? I'll give you a super simple example. On any given day, there's a chance that the power to your home could go out. It's not a high chance for most of us most of the time, but it's not zero. Um, Depending on where you live, you might experience, you know, a couple times a year that, you know, just there's a problem with the power and it, it just isn't on. Well, that's actually why a lot of people own a flashlight. It is literally a way to mitigate the consequences of this not super likely, but certainly possible event. If I have a flashlight and my power goes out, then the one of the worst consequences, the inability to see in the dark, I actually am able to to deal with now. And so it's it's less of a problem if that happens. I think mature, responsible people, one of the ways they're able to get that peace that Glenn is describing, which really is the goal, is they are able to, in truth, say to themselves, I have looked into this matter. I understand the rough likelihood of this bad outcome, and I have taken an appropriate degree of precaution on that basis. Now we are moving on. And from a pure human standpoint, that's actually as much as any of us can do. Giving yourself permission to say, I have done my due diligence here. I have looked into it. I have a sense of what the scope of the problem is, the likelihood of the problem. I've taken those steps that make sense. Now I'm giving myself permission to move on and address other potential problems in my life. That's actually good stuff. Uh, that's, that's, again, a mature, uh, uh, grown, adult way of approaching things. And I want to add one more thought, just as something for you to think about, because I, I think it's good, you know, grist for the mill. Sometimes in life, we look at things and we say, well, this would be so terrible. What I need to do is I need to devote myself to making sure that this could never, ever happen because it's such an awful thing that I just couldn't live with a world where this could occur. And you know, I have a background in, in, in engineering and, and actually particularly in reliability engineering. And so there's this thing that people look at, and it's the idea of adding another nine. So Suppose that you lived in a place where your power was on 90% of the time, you know, one day in 10, your power went out. That wouldn't be a very good power grid, but just go with me for a second. To go from 90% of the time it's on to 99% of the time, as in I'm only without power one day out of 100, it's actually going to take 10 times as much resources to get there. 10 times as much money, 10 times as much work. It's going to be an enormous increase to get from that, that 90% uh, to that 99. If you want to go from 99 to 99.9, .9, I only lose power one day out of 1,000, it's going to be 10 times again. And so 
the reason I tell you that is that, again, people who kind of professionally look at the likelihood that a problem might happen is all of us who have to live on planet Earth actually at a certain point have to agree with ourselves. This bad thing could happen. There's an appropriate degree of preparing for it. If I try and go too far with that, I'm using all of my resources in a way that's not responsible and not realistic to try and prevent something to a degree that's just not necessary. I think that's that's a great point. It really builds on where Glenn started us off. One of the the smartest things I've heard someone say about this exact thing is that if you let something that might happen ruin every day with just being stressed out about it up until it does happen, you've basically let that happen over and over and over again. I think we've used yep. the example on the show before of if you have a, if you get up Monday morning and your boss sends you an email that says, Hey, let's have a meeting Friday at four. They could be firing you. That could be what that meeting is about, but you don't actually do yourself any better to just assume that and stress and act every day between Monday and Friday as if you're going to get fired. Um, because it'll just eat at you. And then one of two things will happen. One, you'll get to Friday and you won't be fired and you'll have gone through all that for nothing. Or B, you'll get to there, get fired, and you'll just have done four extra days of stress because you didn't change the outcome. Now, let's say you're going to have a meeting on Friday where your boss is going to have some very uh, pointed questions about something you did at work recently. It would also be not the best idea to say, huh, meeting at four. They didn't tell me what it's about. There's no way to know. Going on through life now, we'll see what happens when it happens. There is, as these guys are pointing out, an appropriate response of, okay, well, you know, we did lose the Jenkins account, so maybe I should take an hour on Tuesday and just put together some points for why losing the Jenkins account wasn't really my fault and what we're doing better and why we're this, that, and the other, just in case there's a, there's a <laughs> lot of room for just in case between uh, tying yourself in knots as you put in your question. And uh, as both these guys described and, you know, Glenn's a uh, very accurate description, of the churchianism, Oh, I'm just, just being thankful and just gonna do what we can. And, you know, every, every day on the green side of the grass is a blessed day. That's a good overall attitude, but we want to make some room for some specific carve-outs, but as these guys are pointing out, that's all about proportion. That's all about having the wisdom and the peace to know what's the appropriate amount to not necessarily worry, because worry should, if it serves any positive purpose, it is to get us to a point where we do something, you know, I'm worried that I'm going to get fired, therefore I'm going to polish up my resume, or I'm going to come up with a something to point this, or, you know, I'm worried that it's going, I'm worried it's going to rain, so I'm going to take an umbrella. I'm not worried it's going to rain, so I'm just going to Google all the symptoms of hyperthermia in case, what if I get caught in, a, caught in the rain for hours and it pours down upon me and that becomes, then I got the black lung pop and it's a whole thing. That's, <laughs> now we've gone too far in that direction. We've got a action that we're being pointed to, as Glenn pointed us to, that action is very, very important in this. And what's the proportion of that? What's the right amount of that when we've done what we should do, what we can do, and then we got to let it go from there. All right. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, don't forget you can check us out every Sunday at 7 p.m. Central Time or whenever is convenient for you at facebook.com slash thebridgechicago for the Bridgecast. We're going to take the song this week. 
is from our friends Pete and Tasha Lawson. This is a very fun version of the song, It Is Well. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. To say that podcast, we're ready to take over for really any retiring TV show host. It may not be good, but you won't be able to look away. (laughs) 